One of the most well-known stories in our part of the world tells about a man who gets robbed and beat up and is left by the side of the road. It's a famous story. And according to the story, a very important person comes by but does not stop to help probably busy. And then after a little while, another prominent community leader comes walking by, but this person also does not stop and give any aid. Then finally, according to the story, somebody comes and helps this poor fellow who lies there by the side of the road, wounded and bleeding. We find out that this compassionate person is called a Samaritan. Now this story takes place in um, the Jewish culture a couple thousand years ago, and at that time, we have to understand that the Samaritans were a despised people. They were the worst of the worst. And so if you say that someone is a good Samaritan, that's an oxymoron. There isn't any such thing as a good Samaritan. It just doesn't exist because they're they're bad as a group. They've been categorized. So depending upon the cultural setting that we live in, this could be, we could play around with this. You know, this might be, uh, I don't know, the parable of the good Muslim or maybe the parable of um, the good gang member. Actually, if you go see the movie Moonlight, you get to see the parable of the good drug dealer. Worth seeing. It could be any group that is not accepted as being good, but that this person turns out to be the best person who comes along and he takes care of this guy and he tends to his wounds, binds up his wounds, and then takes him to a hotel and pays the hotel and says, give him food and drink and whatever he needs and I will pay for it when I come back through. So that's a famous story. Everybody knows that story. So part of what this story is about is it forces us to realize that anybody from any group could be good. It pushes us so that we have to see that, even if we're not predisposed to think of people from that group as being good. So that's part of what goes on in that story. So many may walk by, and in the story we see some really people who are supposed to be good walk by and not do anything. So it really kind of flips our assumptions. So it's these people who pass by. I'm interested in what's going on with them. And so, you know, every good story has all these dimensions that you can pursue. But right now, I just want to think about the ones who pass by. What is going on with them? And how did they get to be so insensitive? So 
I'll take a little detour and hope to get there. In 1741, there was a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards who preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's a famous, one of the most famous sermons in American history. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And Edwards uses the imagery of each sinner, which would be each of us, hanging by a tiny thread over the lake of eternal fire. So we're hanging by that thread. And at any moment that thread might break or God who is holding on to that thread may decide to let go. And that would be a completely justifiable thing to do according to Reverend Edwards because we all deserve to go to the lake of fire. And so it wouldn't be unjust, but we do have that little thread and if we um, turn towards Jesus in particular way that Edwards thinks we should, then we have a chance. But until that moment, we're, you know, it's a, this would be a great cartoon show. See those fires licking up around our heels? So this sermon is really big time famous. And it's sort of an archetype of a certain kind of theology. It, it illuminates a certain way of doing theology. Thank God, not the only one, but one. And this particular theology we could call maybe the hellfire uh, and damnation theology. And it basically says that we're all inherently sinners and we all deserve to go to hell. And Jesus is our only hope and we better do what's right. The consequences are severe beyond any of our imaginations. So most of us have heard some version of this story in our lives. Now I wanna say one thing before we go any further and I wanna say this is not the only version of the story. I just want you to know that. This is not the only version of the story, but it's one version. Thank goodness. So, for example, we come from a tradition uh, where we have the Unitarian and the Universalist tradition. In the Universalist tradition, we get another version of this story. We get a version where the God is not an angry God, but a, a loving God. And God's love is so powerful that in the end, no matter how circuitous the route may be, everyone will end up with God in heaven in this great place that we sang about today. There was no mention, by the way, of that first theology at all in that song. There was no mention of threat or anything like that. There was just, boy, it's gonna be great. We will go to the place of milk and honey where all is joy and you need no money. I don't know if you heard that line. You don't need no money there. It's not about, you don't have to pay for anything. It's just milk and honey all the way. So that story has a very different feel to it, I think. So that you have a contrasting view, and this is, this is a, a universalist version of the story. 
Uh, universalism is gaining steam in the world of Christian theology, by the way. It really is. It's, it's gaining steam all the time. All right, so uh, the, the evangelical version of the story, by the way, I'm doing enough overgeneralizing this morning to really get, go to jail for 30 days or something. <laughs> so I want to just say that this is all about 72,000 times more nuanced than I'm telling you this morning. But here's sort of the evangelical version is that, again, we're all sinners. We deserve to go to hell, but God loves us and offers us salvation through belief in Jesus. And he hopes that we will take that offer. He hopes that we will take that offer. But if we fail to take the offer, then we're back to the hell part. Okay? So, and this point of view that I'm going to say right now is increasingly popular, is that really we choose to go to hell. We choose to go to hell. So, and again, not everybody tells us the same way, but there's an increasing... See, hell is getting harder and harder to explain in the modern world. And so we may not realize it, but theologians are working on this around the clock. <laughs> I mean, I've read some of these books, so I mean, there are some very, very complex and sophisticated arguments about these things, but the, the, the argument that is in favor at the moment for those who believe that hell is real is the argument that we, it's not God that sends us to hell, it's we who choose to go. And you notice there's some good UU jokes about that, like all the cool people will be there, <laughs> stuff like that. Which is an okay joke, but it, you're not really thinking about hell when you make that joke. You're just thinking about being cute. Because if you really think about a place of eternal torture, nobody would choose to go there. But it's a nice little UU joke. So this idea then that we choose to go to hell, it's our own bad choice. It's not God's anger or judgment that got us there. Now, in this theology, and I'm going to call this the free will theology. So in the free will theology, uh, we all have free will to make this choice. And if we didn't have free will, then we would be much less interesting and noble creatures. So you really need to have free will to have real human beings. And if you take that away, then you're really less than human. But the problem is that if you give, if looking at it from God's point of view for a moment, if you give people free will, then they will screw up. And then they'll have to take the consequences of that. Well, you could say, well, why not be a universalist and think everybody's going to, you know, God's going to eventually bring everybody together. Well, they would say, well, that takes away the free will. Anyway, I don't agree with that argument, but we need another half hour or so on that one. <laughs> so this is the argument that it is we who choose to go to hell. Boy, just, you can think about that tonight when you're going to sleep. <laughs> Um, all right, and the, this argument also assumes that that's, that's just, it's not unjust. It's our choice and we are creatures who in some sense deserve that. 
Okay. Well, you may have think that I totally forgot about the topic this morning. Or maybe I picked up the wrong sermon on the way out the door. <laughs> but I want to talk to you a little bit about these versions of this particular theology and how it plays, it plays out in our culture in a number of ways that we are, are not immediately obvious, I don't think. But I'm going to give you a couple of these ideas and see what you think. And I specifically want to talk about healthcare. I want to talk about the guy by the side of the road and who passes by and why they might pass by. Why would they pass by? Good question. So let's set the story one more time, but instead of heaven, I'm going to talk about healthcare. Just a minor change. <laughs> and see how that might play out in the story. So let's begin where uh, the free will theology begins by saying no one has a right to health care. We, we there's no right. It's not something you deserve. We don't deserve that. It may be a gift or a privilege that God or somebody else bestows, but it's not a right that belongs to us. So it's not for everybody. It's a privilege. If we view healthcare as a right, then actually we just moved over into the universalist story. So, as a matter of fact, that might be why it's called universal healthcare. <laughs> I, I don't want to be theologically competitive about this. I'm, I just want to see how this works. In all honesty, there is part of me that wants to be theologically competitive. So, but in the non-universalist model, or as it was called historically by many people, the partialist model, where not everybody is going to make it, some are and some aren't. However you might view that, there's no right to universality about healthcare. As a matter of fact, universality is not a goal. It is not one of the goals. That's something to think about. It's not one of the goals. If you listen carefully, there's a lot of rhetoric in the air right now, but uh, if you listen to some of them, and particularly Paul Ryan, and I'm not here to badmouth Paul Ryan, he elucidates this better than anybody on the conservative side. And he says that the most important, he does not say that the goal is for everybody to have health care. He says the goal is that everyone can make a free choice. That's what he says. So go Google that and you hear him say it. So what, see the echo of the free will theology. Everyone is going to choose their fate. No one is entitled to a good outcome. It's going to be according to our choice. So it's, it's crucial, according to this model, that people be able to choose not to have health care. Because that's, that's, that's considered an essential part of human nature. If you take that away, you destroy the whole thing. 
To deny people this free will is to fundamentally destroy the definition of American freedom. I'm making somebody else's argument right at this moment. We have to have that choice. And that is why, for many conservatives, the health care mandate appears to be a kind of oppression. It's forcing people into a kind of universalism is what it's doing. So it's a kind of oppression from that point of view. So if universality is not a goal, then even if 24 million people don't get health care, that is not a bad thing because those 24 million people chose that. They're not entitled to it. If they worked hard or did whatever is the right thing, they could get it. But it's not a problem because it was a choice. They chose not to do it. And since they do not deserve to have health care, there's no deserving in this. Remember, it's not a right, it's a privilege from this point of view. Then it's not unjust. It is, in fact, a kind of justice according to this free will system. And this is why someone like Paul Ryan, who is uh, an extreme and pretty articulate free will thinker, he, he really articulates that system well, said he was happy about the bill, even though it would cost 24 million people their health care because the principle of free will is upheld in that system. And there's no sense of them deserving to have it. It's not something that people deserve. It's not a right. So it's not an injustice it, from that point of view. So I want you to see that there are echoes of theology in this. I'm hoping that might make some sense. And by the way, the same argument goes for poverty. It, because there, people in poverty just choose to be in poverty. They just choose to do that and they can go anytime they want to. So in this particular framework, there's no understanding of, there are no external factors that influence this. It's not, there's no uh, social analysis in this. It's only that personal choice. That's, that's it. So if you're in poverty, you choose to be in poverty. If you live in a violent community, you choose to live in a violent community, and so on. That's, that's that argument. Everyone can get out if they want to. They just choose to stay in a bad place. Now, the argument for universal health care is a kind of universal argument, not in the theological sense. I'm not trying to persuade people, all kinds of Christians and Jews and Muslims and all kinds of people can be universalist in this sense, and lots of them are. Lots of them. We underestimate that, I think, in our in our churches. So it's a similar kind of thinking, but in a secular setting. So the argument for universal health care is a compassionate argument emphasizing love and justice. So I would call this the love and justice theology. Inclusive love and justice. So that 
argument says that every single human being is valuable, every single person deserves to have the essentials that are needed for a fulfilling life. The essentials. People don't deserve to have Cadillacs, people don't deserve to have Mediterranean cruises, but people in a, in a compassionate society have a right to those things which are essential for a good life, like food, shelter, healthcare is on that list. After the essentials, everybody is on their own to, to do the best they can in the world, and there will be gradations under that system just like there are now, and that's okay. But everyone deserves to have what is essential for a good life. So are there people who do not deserve that? Who would they be? Are they Muslims, maybe, or Latinos? Or are they African-Americans, or maybe LGBTQ people, or maybe poor people? Maybe there's some group that doesn't deserve this, but who would it be? And under what grounds would we put them in such a group? Do they exert, deserve to be excluded? And if so, why? So, what I can tell you this morning is that the, the old story of the angry God holding us by a tiny thread over a flaming lake of eternal fire, that story is losing ground in the religious world. And it really is. And I want to implore you this morning when you meet any Christian person anywhere in this church or anywhere else, please do not assume that that's what they think. Because the odds are they don't. So please, let's be good to each other in that way. It's just not factual that everybody believes that story. That story is really fading fast. Even evangelicals don't like it. <laughs> There's a wonderful book by an evangelical called Love Wins by a guy named Rob Bell. Love Wins is the name of that book. And it shows an evangelical processing through this thing of whether people are going to go to hell. It's a gorgeous book. I recommend it. That old threat-oriented theology is losing its power. And the ambiance, the model, the worldview of universal rights and inclusive love and compassion are steadily gaining the day, both in the religious world and in the secular world. That's what's happening right now, by fits and starts. Not as a smooth path, <clears throat> as a rocky path, but it's, it's happening. And one can see it in all the faith traditions. You can listen to the Pope and you will hear that the Pope is steadily moving in that direction. Every two or three months, it's another group that he says is okay. What an interesting thing. And the same is true in the secular world. The idea that somehow 24 million people losing their health care is really a good thing because it advances some abstract idea of free will is 
horrifying to millions of people of all religious and secular points of view. Thomas Jefferson's words that we all have certain inalienable rights. Here's the secular form of the argument. We all have certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Though, and even though he didn't live that out in a complete way, those words imply that a free society should be arranged so that everyone has a pathway clear to at least pursue happiness. There's a right to be able to at least pursue happiness. There's no right to be happy. But there's a right to the essentials that are required. And this is how we can argue that health care is a right and not a privilege. Because without it, we do not have the basics to give, live a good life. You can't live a good life when you're beside the road, of the, beside the road bleeding. That's, you, you're not in shape for that. And I know that the emergency rooms take everybody in, but uh, that's not the argument at the moment. Thank goodness they do. If our country is the only democratic country on earth without universal health care, it is partly because of the persistence of an obsolete theology which still has a hold on the American imagination. And it, can, it, it doesn't have to be stated religiously, but it is this idea of this extreme, we view life from an extremely individualistic point of view. And everyone has to be out there fighting for themselves while we're not building the community that we need. And by the way, capitalism really participates in this too because capitalism also thinks that it's okay to have huge disparities. That's okay because the people who are poor but deserve to be poor and that's the way it works. And capitalism by itself is not a moral system. It has to be tempered with compassionate policies that soften that extreme statement. I think capitalism works well in many ways, but if it's not tempered with softening social policies, it just ends up in the same place, the haves and the have-nots. The people who hold these views, either consciously or unconsciously, are not bad people. Many of them are people we love. I have people in my family who I love who hold some of these views. And if they fall by the roadside and are in need, we should all rush to their side. Let us not tell them that they are going to hell because they don't understand it right. Let us be neighbors to them. But we should not let such an antiquated view of life, either religious or secular, slow the march towards full rights, towards a full and loving compassion, and a country that works for everyone and not just some. Martin Luther King wrote in one of the most famous quotations of his, of all the forms of inequality, injustice in healthcare is the most shocking and inhumane. 
But King also says that love will win in the end. And it may be a hard road. And it is a hard road. But, and some will walk by and not lend a hand. That's the reality that we live in. And some will think that is the right thing to do. But we will build the beloved community anyway. As Mark Morrison-Reed, who preached here a couple years ago, said, we will be dragged kicking and screaming into heaven, was his. That's called the kicking and screaming theology. <laughs> we will build the beloved community where all are valued, and when anyone is beaten up by illness or violence or accident or any form of oppression, we will know that we live in a caring community someday. That day is coming, even when it looks like it isn't. This is the path of human cultural evolution, and another name for that is the moral arc that bends toward justice. Therefore, let us be confident, let us be full of faith, let us march and write and sing on the road, because even now, the goal is within sight. So may it be.